travel with Running Warehouse co-founder Joe Rubio and YouTube running shoe sensation Connor Blaylock into a new dimension of running. Come along as we chat running gear, training, coaches, and much more. A podcast journey into the wonderful world of all things running related. Your next epic running adventure awaits at Mr. Rubio Used to Run. Hello, runners. Welcome to another thrilling episode of Mr. Rubio Used to Run, the Running Warehouse podcast. Which number are we on now? This is number 10, Joe. Number 10. <laughs> wow. And here we are, your Marvel superheroes, uh, Connor Blaylock and Joe Rubio. Talk about some running stuff today. Yeah. A lot of exciting stuff today. I mean, we've Wait. both been traveling quite a bit. Yeah. And I know there's just a lot going on in the industry. What do we have to start off today? Well, you recently went to Flagstaff, Arizona, this yes. American home of distance running at yes. the moment yeah right yeah. who'd you visit i mean we visited the whole nozzle team uh saw a lot of um excitement leading into the olympic trials mm-hmm. and you know by the time this podcast airs we will know who is going to represent the team but it was exciting to see the process going into the trials how much miles how much effort's gone into it and it was fun to just be a fly on the wall right check it out i'm actually going to the olympic trials uh here i think i'm leaving tomorrow yeah, yeah i better figure out when i'm leaving but i'm <laughs> leaving tomorrow so going to orlando and then going from there to um new york city for the Milrose games yeah so that'll be fun too but uh who you got for the marathon trials <sighs> top three men top three women that's a tough question because i think when you look at the full field yeah after 10 maybe after the top 15 None of those people are really going to be a factor. But when we look at the top 10 athletes, it could go any direction. It's really close. Um, We did find out that Jared Ward did have to pull out today. Obviously a running warehouse favorite, but he's been having some struggles the past year or so. Mm -hmm. So was he going to be a contender? Hard to know. Right. But I think for me, um, probably Mance is my number one. I mean, he's so strong right now in his workouts in his past few races. I mean, he's the guy everyone's looking at right now. Number two, you know, this might be a little tough to say, but I think Galen Rupp, just because of the experience. Yep. I know he hasn't proven himself in the last year or two. He hasn't done anything crazy special, but he knows how to execute on race day. He's got the experience. And, you know, you just you can't ever count that guy out. And then number three, I'm kind of going back and forth because I think Clayton yeah. has, is looking strong. He's been training a lot with Mance. So I, I want to say maybe him, but then I keep going back and forth. I think maybe C.J. Albertson as like that dark horse just because he knows how to take <laughs> it off hard. He knows how to shake things up in the race. I think he's a strong runner. Does he have it? I don't know. I think the safer bet is Clayton, but I'm going to go with C.J. That's exactly my Top three. Really? Wow. <laughs> we didn't even discuss this before. Great, great minds think alike. <laughs> well, I was going to be between CJ and Chalimo. Oh, Chalimo. Yeah. And you I, can't forget because that he just came in. Oh, as right. That. And I read a quote from Steve or Scott Simmons, his coach, mm-hmm. uh, who's a friend of mine. And he yeah. says he's going after 208. Yeah. Uh, one of two things is going to happen. Mm-hmm. He's either going to hit 208 yes. and make the team. Yes. Or he's going to blow up. <laughs> But the guy can race. Yes. Yeah. And has he, has he ran a half marathon yet? Or is, no, I don't. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, he's proven himself in five k. Five k. I mean, he's got an Olympic medal from the five k. I mean, that that has recently shown to translate into yes. really good marathons. 
And I think what's going to scare the other athletes is they have no idea what he's capable of. Well, I think they they know what he's capable of. Can he actually pull it off? I don't know. Yes. Yeah. And then on the women's side, I'm going with uh, Emily Sisson, uh, Kira D'Amato, and Betsy Sena. Yeah. You know, I'm as much as it's tough on the men's side, for me, it's even tougher on the women's side because, you know, a little bias just going and train, uh, working out and training with NAZ, Kellen. Alephine and Lauren, all three of them look so strong. So I think any one of them has the potential to make the team. But then, yeah, you're right. Like Sisson, um, Betsy, like just there's so much talent that I don't even know if I can pick a top three on the women's side. <laughs> yeah. A uh, sentimental favorite of mine is Sarah Hall, yes. just because um, a good friend of mine coached her in high schools. So, um, and wow, yeah. how how crazy! It's, it's like eight. She's made eight Olympic trials. Yeah. I mean, in everything, fifteen hundred steeplechase. Yes. Yeah, every I think every event in track and field she's made it in. A true veteran <laughs> on the women's side, and yeah. then I think with that topic in mind, we got to go back to the men's side and talk about Black Cactus. Yeah, he's in there for what? <laughs> <laughs> what is this? His tenth Olympic? I don't I know. I don't know. <laughs> Abdi Rahman has just been around forever. Yes. Yeah, since the New Testament or something. But yeah. you know, the guy is is pretty amazing. Yeah. So, um, the other thing I'm going to is is Milrose, which should be a fantastic meet. The, mm-hmm. the big thing is our friend Josh Kerr going after the world record in the two mile. Yes. Uh, and there's uh, a slouch in the field called Grant Fisher. Yes. So that should be a, a really good matchup. Looking yeah. forward to that. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Grant is, you know, he's one of my favorites. We, uh, at the World Championships this year, I sat next to his dad. And, uh, you know, the amount of talent he has, the amount of work he puts in, I mean, I think he's probably capable of breaking several more American records and maybe some world records. We don't know. Yeah. And now he's back with his high school coach. Right. Uh, Should be a good thing. Yeah. He's a little bit more uh, personally straining. Yeah. And I think he's in Park City. Mm -hmm. So we'll see what happens. Yeah. Yeah. Should be fun. So let's start today's enlightening podcast by reviewing some uh, data I got at a symposium mm. uh, put on by Brooks, and this was pre-COVID. I don't think these, these numbers have changed that much. But they spent quite a bit of time in rent specialty stores around the United States, I think primarily in Seattle, but um, just interviewing people and getting an idea of what the marketplace looked like. Yeah. So, and this is, like I said, it's it's estimates, but... Uh, according to Brooks at this symposium, 10% of the people who purchase running shoes understand the technology and buy based in large part on the technology. So these are probably a lot of people who are listening to this podcast yeah. that understand all the stacks mm-hmm. and the foams and the plates and understand what goes into a $275 pair of racing shoes. And they correct us anytime we make a yes, mistake. exactly. <laughs> and same thing with running shoes in general. Yeah. So that's 10% of the population. 15% of the popula- population does not understand the technology and buys based on that misunderstanding. Mm. And the example they used was a gentleman that uh, came out of a running shoe store, mm. and they asked him why he bought the running shoes. And he says, because they're stable. They said, how do you know it's stable? And he squeezed the heel counter and said, because it's got a firm heel counter. Now, that's an aspect of it, right. but it's not entirely everything. But that was the reason he bought the shoes is because of the heel counter. Right. So it's kind of like um, what you call it? conspiracy theorist, right? It's just kinda, you get an idea in your head and you go with it, and it might be right or might be wrong, but you're going in, in, in the direction you think is right. Right. Uh, there's 25% of people who buy it based on expert opinions. Mm-hmm. So these are going to be people that talk to their coach or talk to a friend who can, they consider an expert. Um, it could even be themselves. They just like 
Brooks Shoes, and so they do that. Mm-hmm. And then there's also the world famous uh, <laughs> Running Shoe Geeks message board. <laughs> Most of the questions are people asking other Running Shoe Geeks, how does this fit? Yep. You know, what's the mileage? Yes. All these types of things. So they're not necessarily doing the research themselves, but they are asking the podiatrist, mm-hmm. whoever, for their expert advice and, and going in large part on that. So that comes out to 50% of the people. Yeah. The other 50% of the people buy it based entirely on the looks of the shoe, mm-hmm. which people listening to this podcast are going, nobody does that. And oh. well, I walk around this building and everyone. nearly everyone buys their shoes based on the looks of the shoes. Yes. Uh, the other interesting fact that was brought up is that less than 50% of the people that buy running shoes will actually use them for running. Most we use them for walking or standing or leisure activities. Yeah. Um, so I don't know what you're going to do with that information. I just find it interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that is really interesting. And I, from my days in working retail, yeah. it does kind of all seem to align. Um, I will say when we look at those numbers, those numbers might be different from our consumers yeah, versus sure. maybe a brick and mortar store. And even within brands like, I think specifically what comes to mind is on and Hoka. Yeah. I'd imagine those numbers maybe shift a little bit more towards, you know, maybe the looks people, of the shoes and, yes. and expert, you know, people suggesting it. Yeah. You know, cause oh, yeah. Cause that's what, in, when I am in retail, yes. uh, a lot of people that come in are buying Hoka's because their yes. friend told them to get Hoka's. That's basically it. I mean, every one of my non-runner friends, yeah. family friends, they always are asking about the Hoka through recommendation, yeah. exactly. which is great. Yeah. But you know, just shows kind of the differences. Yeah, there's quite a bit different. Um, let's talk about some trends in the industry. Okay. There's some positive trends and some negative trends. Mm-hmm. The positive trends are, you know, I've seen weights drop considerably in everything. And uh, high stack uh, racing shoes are coming in at six and a half ounces or lighter. Mm-hmm. And this is this is stuff we're seeing for 2025. Um, it's, you know, it's the same, you know, idea. Uh, zeros but it's not the evo at 500 bucks it's going to be the other models at like 275 are going to come in close to six ounces nike's that way um a6 will have models that way saucony uh, which is really cool yeah. um the other thing is on just regular super shoes stacks continue to climb and stability is improving so that means uh, runs are easier runs are faster yep. which isn't a bad thing that's a good thing Go and I, I think both of those a lot of that comes down to the foams. I mean, we talk about it, but every year the foams get bouncier, they get lighter, and you know it, it's able, it, it's helping shoes get higher without increasing weight. And you know, when you have two shoes, you look at a, a modern day shoe right now, maybe like a Rebel, mm-hmm. and you compare it to a shoe a few years ago. You know, if you can get the same experience, but a shoe is two ounces lighter and maybe even bouncier, why wouldn't? Why would you want the old shoe? You know. For sure. I mean, the, the, the cool thing is we're starting to see some really good foams yes. and lighter weight at affordable packages. Yes. So I'll bring up the Rebel yeah. V4 mm-hmm. and the new Hoka Mach 6. Both have fantastic foams. Both are $140, a great value. And not only uh, do these shoes feel good, um, but a lot of the brands are taking notice um, and it's causing everyone to step up their game creates better price points mm-hmm. across the board, creates better performance. You know, it's it's making everyone see that you can create these shoes at a $140 price point. So, you know, I think it's a good thing for the industry as a whole. Yeah. The, you know, one thing that's kind of funky is um, 
when when the companies come out with new foams and and make uh, advancements in their footwear and still charge two hundred fifty two hundred seventy five dollars, that's that's in my mind justified. But when you're talking a company that has a foam that's six or eight years old and still trying to charge two fifty two seventy five, I mean that's ludicrous, right? I mean it should be able to scale down the price on that thing. I mean we see this, you know, with certain brands, especially over the last year showing us a shoe that will be coming out at a certain price point. They say, well, Nike has that price point. Well, Adidas has that price point. We'll say, well, one, you're not that brand. Yeah. And two, what's your innovation that's going to make someone pick your shoe over the uh, the current market leaders? And they don't have an answer. And I think that's going to make, you know, you either lower your price point to make it, um, mm-hmm. you know, something that the consumer wants, or you provide an innovation that is going to give a distinct advantage to the consumer. Cause I think we've seen with the Evo that if you provide a solution that is going to give visible results, people will pay any price. Yeah. And $500 is a little extraordinary, but it is, I, but, but people, people are buying yeah, it. That's the crazy yeah, thing. Exactly. So onto some more of the negative things that are going on just in the, the sporting footwear industry in general is I was reading the wall street journal that retro sneakers, the you know the old school ones are leading the athletic shoe industry. Now the problem with that is, is they tend to be uh, less expensive. Mm-hmm. And it's not in all cases, but they are. Uh, but you know the number one shoe for Adidas is the Samba. It's an mm. indoor soccer shoe from the fifties or sixties, right? right? People are buying that, and what ha- what that tells me is there's just a lack of innovation in the industry, and we just have this uh, I don't know reactive committees. You have a group of people that everyone's making the same shoe. Mm-hmm. So everyone's going after Hoka, you know, tall stacks and everything. And you get to a point like we are now where they're, they're, it's just a copycat industry and people are risk averse. So the last real big, huge innovation was Nike with, uh, went in 2016 mm-hmm. when they came out with the 4%. You know, since then, everyone's kind of, there's, there's no reason for people to open up their checkbook unless it's, unless it's really, really forward thinking. Yeah. When I, I feel like we've seen that some a little bit in the movie industry recently, everyone's got to do their remakes. We see it in uh, even in cars. You know, they they got to bring back uh, the the old retro remake of things. And I, I think part of it is the nostalgia and people that name recognition. But I think a little bit of it is just laziness. Yeah. You know, they they know something worked in the past, so let's bring it back rather than looking towards the future. Right, and that's you know kind of like Tesla right now, right? Yeah. I mean, they haven't really innovated it in a while. Oh, Joe, uh, the Cybertruck, come the on. The Cybertruck, yeah, it's, <laughs> you know, years behind like Ford and GMC and all that stuff. But um, but what are they doing? They're lowering the price. Yes. And that's what happens. You lower the price. Now, the problem with that is, is people get used to paying lower prices for products. And then when you try to bring these new products out that aren't really advancing anything and try to charge a higher price, people are going to be hesitant to do it. And right. that's what we're seeing. Yes. Right. People are, are wanting closeout shoes. We had with the pandemic, people put stuff on sale. People get used to paying for stuff on sale. And you try to bring out these other shoes that aren't really innovative at $160, $180. Yeah. And it's it's a tough sell. Right. Yeah. So, um, you know, as far as innovation goes, we keep bringing up Jean Luc, but, you know, he's super innovative. But the thing is, is, he did not come from the running industry. Right. He was a professional skier. Right, he was really big behind the parabolic ski. So his his view of the running shoe industry is, why can't we do this? Yeah. And everyone in the industry, you know, all these these reactive committees go, well, we can't do that. And he goes, why? 
you know? And so I look at tennis shoes and I go, why can't you guys do this? They go, well, no one ever does it. I go, well, why can't you put a super foam inside a tennis shoe and put it inside of a, a cassette okay. and make it lighter and more responsive and softer? Yep. Who would want that? Well, you can't do that. Well, why? It's just stuff like that, right? Right. You need somebody that comes from outside the industry to really shake things up. Right. And, and tennis is a very traditional. Well, man, it's brutal. Yeah. So back a thousand years ago, um, Matt Donnelly was in charge of, of uh, track and field and tennis for uh, ASICs. And I was at uh, Nationals in, in uh, Eugene. And we were uh, right behind the, the Pancake House. I forget the name of the hotel. But anyways, he had this display. And one of the shoes on the display was an Asics Noosa. Mm. And I said, Matt, why don't you make the tennis shoe in the Noosa colors? Because at the time, you could only get white tennis shoes. Right. And the Noosa is the craziest the crazy colorway color way on right. the market. And he says, well, no one will buy it. And I said, I, yeah, I think people will buy it. And he says, I need somebody to, to you know, pay, buy like 2,000 pairs, 3,000 pairs. So I talked to my partners, and they got an exclusive on the shoe, and it blew up. Because it was so far out of left field yeah. for the tennis market. And it, it was really kind of odd in a sense because it was 10 to 1 sales on the women's side. Wow. So women were buying it in much greater yeah. numbers than men. Yeah. So that was kind of cool. Yeah. I don't know where I'm going with I mean, that. <laughs> we, we even saw when the Noosa, you know, on the running side of things, people, some people were buying it for running, but I would say the majority were buying it because of the look. You know, going back to, you know, it's something unique, yep. it's different. It wasn't the best shoe, no. but you were seen in that shoe. Right. And the other thing, too, is to put uh, Asics on the map for tennis shoes. Yes. And now they're the top. They yeah. have the top two models in the industry, right? Yeah. The, the other cool thing about Asics is um, I've tried on the tennis shoes, and they fit like the running shoes, and the golf shoes fit like the tennis shoes and the running shoes. You would mm -hmm. think that'd be the case with all brands, but that's not the case with brands. They all fit differently. Yeah. But Asics does a good job of making sure the fit is consistent. Right. So if you like Asics running shoes and you get their golf shoes, like I got a pair of their golf shoes and I, I didn't wear them for the longest time because everyone said golf shoes are uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. But it turns out they're really comfortable. Yeah. You know, I just wear them around all the time, which isn't a, a smart thing because you slip on the floor in the, in the grocery <laughs> store and stuff like that. So um, from the internet... Are you ready to move on to this? Uh, I'm ready. Okay. <laughs> from the world-famous Let's Run message board comes this. From Need New Shoes, he asked, or she asked, when do shoe companies put their previous models on sale? Ooh. Now, you would think this would be an easy question to answer, and it, it no, it yeah. isn't. It should be cut and dried. So there was a time when brands came out with a new model every year, and uh, I don't know if people in, in uh, listener land know this, but... Um, there's price protection. So it's called a minimum advertised price. So uh, a brand can't tell you what to charge the customer for the brand, but they can decide not to ship your product. So that's what happens in the industry. That's why you see the same price for all different models yeah. across at, at every manufacturer. And for those in, in Listerl land, if you see a model that's $160 everywhere, except for something that shows up on your phone for 50 bucks, you should probably not give those people your credit card. No. Something is fishy there. No. <laughs> so in the past, it was new models every year. And then one to two months beforehand, they would allow you to discount the shoe like 10 or 15 or 25% with the idea being that we're going to get rid of the current model and then replace it with the new model. And so you would get this markdown cadence. It might be 25% off at 30 days out. It might be 40% off at, at 15 days out. 
And then when the new model shows up, all bets are off and you can charge whatever you want for it to get rid of it. Right. right? So that's how it worked. But what has happened in recent past is brands have lengthened the life cycle. Yes. So what happens there, that helps like a brick and mortar maintain their inventory levels, yep. which is which is fine. But now you're seeing shoe companies do 18 and 24 months. Right. And we see sales drop off significantly after 18 months because people want new product. Right. We'd like to see things six months or 12 months, but that's not always the case. Then you have a case of like the, the Hoka Bondi, which isn't going to be updated until spring of 25. So that'll be a three-year-old model. So you won't find Bondi 8s on sale for three years. Yeah. Asics, on the other hand, introduced the with the Nimbus 25 mm-hmm. in early 23 yep. and came out with the 26 in early 24. Which was all new. It wasn't which, just a number up. No, update. it was all brand new. And the, the advantage for uh, ASICs is that 25 goes on sale at 25% off. And so you have a choice of buy, buying $180 Bondi or getting a 20, uh, 25% off on a, a Nimbus. And you go, well, I'll try the Nimbus. And so ASICs, you know, I don't know if this is the case, but they're going to have their models on sale more often, which gives them an opportunity to get market share. Yes. Yeah. And then you have the other thing, like the right now the Adrenaline 22 is replaced by the Adrenaline 23, and they're both at the same price. Yeah. Now, who in the hell is going to buy the 22 at the same price as the 23? Right. <laughs> and it, 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 Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a tough position. I think we've talked about these longer life cycles, and right. not only does it maybe – curb a little bit of the innovation because it's longer time between models, but also you don't get to hear that constant feedback and say from one version to the next year, maybe people didn't like something, they can make changes, but now it's going two years between. So if you've got a shoe, maybe you don't like, it goes two years and the next one, maybe they still don't make a change. It's going to be another two years. So you don't you don't get those micro adjustments. Um, yeah, so. so it usually takes about two years for any change to to yes. be implemented. Right. You know, and so the thing is, is that if you have a version one, you won't see any significant improvements until version three. Right. But you know that you know that there's something wrong with version one, and yeah. by the time three comes out, you'll be good to go. Yeah. Right. And hopefully, you made some adjustments to version two that make an improvement on the shoe. So, do you think moving forward? we're going to see the trend. It, 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 to me, it seems like a lot of brands are moving to those longer life cycles, mm-hmm. but do you think there are going to be some brands like ASICs and maybe some others that are going to, you know, strategically do well, a shorter it, life it cycle? It doesn't even need to be a significant upgrade. I mean, it, it, yeah. you know, kudos to ASICs for, I mean, redoing the tooling yeah. and tooling is like the midsole and the outsole and the upper. But what, what tends to be fairly effective is the same tooling. So same midsole and outsole in a different upper. Yeah. And do that annually. So you do a complete retooling change every every other year yep. and change the upper every year. Yeah. And that seems to work pretty yeah. well. Get that freshness. Yeah, new colors, yeah. Uh, new upper design and so forth. And people seem to respond pretty well to that. Yeah. So here's uh, the second thing from Let's Run. And this is from Struggling Runner. And this is a pretty actually a pretty good question. Okay. Um, the, the subject matter is, are my coaches' workouts too hard? Ooh. So here's what Struggling Runner has to say i run the 800 and 1600 in high school and below is the workout my coach gave me for today i'm currently preparing for outdoor track we don't run indoors and i typically have three workouts a week two that are more speed oriented and one that is more distance oriented recently i haven't been able to finish my coach's workouts and i'm wondering is it my fault i feel like i'm putting a high level of effort into these but i never seem to be able to complete anything my coach has planned 
I don't know if his workouts are too hard or if I'm just not trying hard enough. Need some opinions. Thanks. Example, today's workout. Two sets of four by 400 at mile pace and four by 200 at 800 pace. So for those that don't know how sets work, the first set is four by 400 at mile pace. So that's a mile worth of stuff at mile race pace and four by 200 at 800 race pace. So 800 meters worth of stuff at 800 meter race pace. Two sets of that. So the coach is asking for two miles worth of stuff at mile race pace in addition to one mile of stuff at 800 meter race pace. That's red flag immediately. Uh, So just as a point of reference, um, for my guys, these are 26-year-old post-collegiate national class distance runners. The most I will give them at any speed between 800, 1600, and 3200 is twice the race distance volume. So if they're running stuff at mile race pace, the most I'll give them is two miles. Mm. That's a 100% of a workout. Yeah. If it's 800-meter race pace stuff, the most I'll give them is one mile worth of stuff. So in this case, the coach is asking this kid to do 200% of what I'm asking my national class post-collegiate runners to do. So there's a reason this kid can't do the workout because it's impossible. And if you do, if you do complete that workout, you're going to have nothing left for race day. No, no. And so the, 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 it's just way, it's way too much. So you either have to slow down significantly or you need to cut back on the, on the volume of work. So just off the top of my head, the volumes that we do tend to be, if you're doing stuff at 400 meter race pace, it's 800 meters total volume. 800 is 1600 meters worth of work. Mile pace is two miles worth of work. Uh, 3K or two mile and 5K is four miles worth of work. And then you start getting diminishing returns. Like having somebody do six miles worth of stuff at 5K race pace, you have to be a horse to be able to do that. Um, And then 10K, we tend to, it's more like one-to-one. So six miles worth of stuff. Then a half marathon race pace, it might be 10 miles, eight to 10 miles. Mm -hmm. So it's like 75%. And then marathon race pace, it might be uh, 13 to 16 miles. So, you know, you just have to adjust it like that. So the other thing that when I have those volumes in my head, if somebody says like this weekend that they want to do some tempo work mm-hmm. and they're at eight miles worth of tempo and they want to do four mile tempo, that's 50% of a workout. Yeah. And they want to do some quarters afterwards at say 5k race pace. Well, if they're doing four miles worth of stuff, then we can do two miles worth of stuff at, at 5k pace quarters. And that's exactly what Silas did last week. Yeah. Right. He said, we want to do some quarters and he wanted to do two or three. I said, why don't you do eight? Yeah. I told him the, the rationale behind it. But having those, those volumes in mind helps a lot. But, um, uh, and I ahead. think, I think every athlete has gone down this in some capacity in their career. Yeah. Um, you know, not being able to finish work, I may be doing a little too much, going a little too hard and it can be hard on the body physically, but mentally, oh my gosh, when you start not finishing workouts. It's horrible. That's the one thing as a coach you do not want to do is yes. give people workouts they cannot finish. Yeah. It just messes with their head. The race day yeah. is going to be a struggle. Then our next workout is going to be a struggle. It's just, it's hard to come back. Yeah. And then you start doubting yourself and yeah. you're, you're, you're fried. Yeah. You start getting really tired. So, I mean, it's, it's almost better to err on, you know, maybe doing just a little bit less than yeah. you think. And then until you've kind of dialed in where you're at. And that was always the Bowerman, the, the, one of the founders of Nike. Yeah. He was a head coach at the University of Oregon. And he always wanted his athletes to be able to do one more, whatever they're doing. Right. If it was mile reps, you want, you can do one more, but we're not going to have you do that one more. Right. That sort of thing. So, um, yeah, on a future episode, we'll talk about recovery times. 
because that plays into it too. So right. the pace you're running, the right. volume of work you're doing, and the recovery times. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think there is a lot to go on that. And the one that I remember was switching from college to running with the Aggies yeah. and how much difference a 400-meter workout can be when you get your um, – you know, you're maybe just one minute jog versus what you're famous for is more of that up tempo rest where you like you, a threshold type of thing. Yes. Yeah. When you think you're getting a good rest, but man, they add up really quickly. And then by the time you get back on the on 400, you're like, did I even recover? <laughs> no. And the other thing too, is it's really odd, but the, the slow one is the harder one. Yes. Right. It, it's really odd. And right. the, the fast ones kind of take care of themselves. Right. Um, you don't do that workout that often, but you can do it as mile reps too, like four by mile yeah. at 10 K pace with a, I don't know, 80, 90 second quarter in between. Mm-hmm. That thing's not that fun. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and the last question for the day is, uh, Facebook has a thing called cross country, Network, which is a bunch of cross-country coaches around the world uh, asking each other questions. And this one's from Andy Christie. He asks, or could be a woman too, uh, anyone know of a stopwatch that lets you see the total running time, but also the time of the split you're taking? I've only had stopwatches that show the split time once you end the split. Uh, I'd like a stopwatch, actual stopwatch that can do this, not a phone or an app. Mm. Well, there's two things that I carry with me all the time that do both things. One is this $20, <laughs> seriously, $20 Timex Ironman. I mean, yeah. I, I like those more than, you know, the, your the fancy. Garmin. Yeah. Because you get the split. It gives you overall time. Yeah. It's easy. Right. There's that. And also, I know you mentioned, uh, Andy, that you didn't want a phone, but your iPhone has that stopwatch function. And I like the, the iPhone because it shows a running time. Yeah. When you do the, the Timex, it just gives you two numbers. And so sometimes you forget which one's which. Right. But it'll do overall and, and uh, what you call it, splits. So we have Kevin's Closet right next. Right. Everyone's waiting to see what new shoe does Kevin have, and really new shoe, old, old shoe. shoe. Exactly. And for today, oh, man, we have the Tiger Jayhawk from 1973. This is a classic. It is. It is uh yeah, that was, I believe, the lightest racing flat at the time at 8.3 ounces. <sighs> so that was the lightest shoe that you could buy in 1973. And, and there's, there's no, nothing there. There's no midsole here. I mean, we got a few millimeters in the heel. What, what did it feel like running in this shoe? It was brutal. <laughs> um, so th- uh, there was that and... I mean, that was the most popular racing shoe yeah. on the market. That's when Nike was just coming on board. You had the Obori. And, right. Uh, and obviously, when you look at this, you think it's an ASIC shoe. But yeah. technically, at the time, it was Onitsuka Tiger. Yeah, Onitsuka Tiger. And a lot of people don't know, but Nike in the early days was actually a distributor uh, distributing these shoes until, I think, around early 70s when they started making their own shoes. But this was the brand at the time. And, and so what Phil Knight did this was in uh, beaverton i believe is where he was born and raised um he had his sisters taking the logos off uh asic shoes oh and really replacing them with nike logos and that's when they started the blue ribbon sports and yeah. then um a friend of mine uh who recently passed away uh, he was the head coach at, at fresno state he lived next door to phil knight really red estes so he was head coach at cross-country coach at at uh, fresno state yeah and, uh, you know, you sit down and you talk to him and he, he said, I was just too stupid to realize 
because Phil wanted me to invest in the company. <laughs> and he says, there's no way in hell that this company is going to do anything with your sisters in the basement taking logos off of Asics shoes and putting this upside down Puma logo on there. Right. Right. Seems like a lawsuit <laughs> waiting to happen. Well, now it would be. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, I, I think when we look at these shoes, again, no real midsole. Um a nice, a nice uh, gum rubber gum outsole. rubber outsole. But what always stands out to me of these shoes of the '70s is the upper. Yeah. And you know, you got these like really nice suede overlays. The material is just super soft. I mean, I, I don't know how this would uh, fare nowadays, but when you I, look at the craftsmanship, it, it's just amazing. I think going back to retro shoes, that'd be really cool. <laughs> yeah. Retro a vapor fly shoe. with yeah. uh, an upper like but, this. And the problem you run into is is now when people think back and they go, I really wish I could get that shoe. And you, you find one, you know, like at a, a Zappos or something like that. It actually doesn't have like a, a, a running midsole. It has right. a cheap, cheap, cheap midsole, cheap materials all around. It's just meant to look, right. it's a knockoff. These retros that are coming back, I know Asics had a few, they're not going to be identical to when it was originally released. No. And there's a couple people in the building wearing the New Balance with a giant N on it. Yes. It actually showed up in a, uh, on my Instagram feed from Rabbit. Of all things. Wow. Yeah. So, but, so we fast forward uh, to 2007. So that's 73. Okay. 2007 is, what, how many years is that? I don't know. It's quite a few. uh, 24? No. Yeah. Uh, 34. 34. 34 years. Yeah. Same weight. This is a shoe. Gabriel Slossi ran his 20359. I know that because he signed it here. He signed it and it says H. Haley. Yeah. Yeah. Gabriel Slossy shoe. So this is 8.3 ounces. Yes. From thir- so yes, it has more stack, yep. has more protection, yep. but still 8.3 ounces. Right. Which again, another big step forward. And we started to see times go down. Definitely some innovation here. But again, every year um, we, we continue to see innovation. And it really wasn't until 26. Well, you know, maybe around 2013, 2014 with Boost. Yeah. And then Vaporfly in yeah, 2016. Yeah, Boost was still heavy, though. But Boost was heavy. Yeah. And then you, 2016, you started getting weights down. And right. now we have the replacement for this, the Evo 1. Yeah. That's under five ounces. Right. With a huge stack on it. Right. So that's the, the progression on the weights. Right. And the, the protection. Yeah. And the foams and so forth on, on racing shoes. When we look at this shoe, then we look at some of the Boost shoes that set records. Adidas really, for a long time, has been on the forefront of that racing marathon technology mm-hmm. and Nike kind of sw- snuck in in 2016, but you're right. You know, I didn't think Adidas maybe was going to be able to respond. And then when we saw the Evo, it shows Adidas is committed and they're back trying to create they, the fastest, best marathon. Always, you know, the Addis Zero line's always been fantastic. Yes. You know, just in terms of selection and, and really filling a lot of different slots. Yeah. Um, and similar thing has gone on with spikes. I mean, spikes right. in what? In, they were about in the seventies. They're about six and a half ounces. Okay. Okay. And then uh, this one right here is five and a half ounces. Adidas again, and yeah. it's signed by Mo Farah because yes. when he first arrived on the scene in two thousand and five yes. or two thousand and four, he was running for Adidas. Right. Pre Oregon Project. Pre Sir Mo Farah. <laughs> Pre Sir. <laughs> that yeah. sort of thing. And now, I mean, spikes. If it's not under four and a half ounces, yes, it's not really relevant. Right. Yeah. I mean, we, we've seen, um, you know, the victory that came out in 08, mm-hmm. which was, I want to say it was in the high three-ounce range. But a lot of those top-in-class spikes 
from 2008 to 2016 were light, but there was nothing to them. So yeah. you wore these spikes. You were trashed for a week or two. Yeah, you were beat up. Now with the super foams, we're seeing basically the same weight in that low four-ounce range. Mm-hmm. But so much more foam. Really, the only thing limiting foam right now is the restrictions that World Athletics is putting on spikes. Um, but that's only for the pros. So it will be interesting to see, will we see higher cushion spikes for the masses, for the high school, for the college athletes? Because there's, yeah, no there's, there's no restrictions. I'm waiting for a brand to do the crazy legal spike that'll set an NCAA record because yeah. they can wear whatever they want for now. Yeah, exactly. And the same thing with high school, yeah. right? I mean, but you look at how many kids are running super fast. Yes. Like high school and college kids. I mean, it, w- Northern Arizona, this... Yeah, all you all you people uh, bagging on Mike Smith, okay, eat it, man. Nico ran 12.57, mm-hmm. you know? And everyone's going, well, Mike Smith's screwing up Nico. I don't think he is. Yep. It doesn't appear to be. Right? And we saw 3.53. 3.53, yeah, from Solomon. Yes. I mean, it's, but, but the stuff is crazy. Yes. Yeah, it's crazy good, but... Um, and they're going to be a factor come trials day. I think a lot of the pros were maybe just thinking... I just need to look at my fellow uh, sponsored athletes, but now the college kids are going to be a factor. Yeah, and th- you know that's the other thing that uh, kind of has me leaning towards Rupp uh, ah, because yes. he's he's coached by Mike Smith. Yes, I actually had in the back of my mind that Salazar served his suspension. I really thought he was going to be coaching <laughs> Rupp at, at this trials. And hard to know, may you know maybe behind the scenes yeah. there are some we we don't know exactly. No I'm knows. thinking if if <laughs> there's any athlete that Salazar would be coaching, it'd be it'd be Rupp. Yeah. I mean, they've been working together since he was in high school. Right. Right. Um, right. So, anyways. Well, that's a wrap for this this episode. Yeah. What, what are people supposed to do? You know? Like. like <laughs> subscribe. Comment, comment down below. Yeah. Ask us questions. We're still waiting for, you know, we've gotten some questions, yeah. but I, I, I want something that's really going to test us. Exactly. And then uh, I should have some stories back from uh, the trials and also Melrose. Right. And we'll come up with some more engaging content in our next episode, which would be number 11, correct? Number 11. All right. More big things to come. (laughs) Everyone have a good run out there. Thanks a lot. Okay. Peace out.